Hey, good morning, church. Great to be together. As, as you can see, uh, welcome to week one of our uh, fall growth series. It's called Name Above All Names. And over the next eight weeks, we're going to be looking at eight names of Jesus, eight titles of Jesus, because John says, when we believe in his name, we have life. And God wants to give you life, an abundant life, as we believe, receive, and experience Jesus in all the ways that he has revealed himself uh, to us. And each week, as one builds upon another, that we would be able to trust him and to treasure him more than we ever have before. And so last Sunday, Pastor Mark sort of introduced the series and he gave us a, a challenge to grow to commit to something to grow, because we don't grow by accident, we grow by making commitments to grow. And he challenged us to do three things in particular. One is to do our best to hear the message every week. Number two, to join or start an eight-week group that's gonna track along with our sermon series. And if you uh, didn't have a chance to join a group yet and you're not in a group, all you have to do is head out to the lobby after service as Nick mentioned, Cody is out there. He'll help you make a connection. Or you can consider just starting a group yourself, just inviting a few friends that can come to your house or can meet at a coffee shop or a restaurant uh, for the discussion questions together. And you'll grow more than anybody if you start a group. And so consider that. You can do it and we can help you do it. And all you have to do is see Cody out there and we'll, and we'll get you all the resources that you need to do it. So that's the second commitment, start or join uh, an eight-week group. And the third is we're gonna be reading through the Gospel of John together uh, over the next seven weeks. So if we've divided the Gospel of John up into 49 daily readings, day one is tomorrow. And last week we handed out these, these bookmarks that have, that have the 49 days in it. If you didn't get one, they're out at the guest service desk or you can see Cody as well and grab one on your way out. But tomorrow is day one of our journey through the Gospel of John. And the name that we're doing today is The Word, The Word. And this comes from the very first verse of the Gospel of John. And we're gonna read that in just a second, but before we read it, and because we're also getting ready to launch a journey through the whole Gospel of John tomorrow in our reading, I think it'd be meaningful to ask, who is John? And why does his witness matter? Why does his testimony matter? Is he a credible witness? And to just sort of humanize John a little bit too. What do we, what do we know about him? And so here's what we know about John. One is that we know John was from a small town. He was from the town of Capernaum. It's on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. It was a small fishing village. He and his brother James worked with their father, Zebedee, in a fishing business in Capernaum. And Jesus directly called John and James to follow him. They were probably in their early 20s when Jesus called them, give or take a few years. They might have been a little younger, maybe, maybe slightly older. And John was constantly with Jesus for the next three years. John was probably closer to Jesus than any of the other disciples. John is the one leaning up against Jesus' shoulder 
at the Last Supper. Uh, they had a nickname, I don't know if you remember the nickname of John and James that Jesus gave them. He called them the sons of, of thunder, probably because they were loud and bold uh, young men. Uh, we know from the Gospel of Mark that uh, John's mother, uh, her name was Salome, and Salome was a pretty bold woman herself. We know that because one, she raised the sons of thunder. The other is because she's the one, if you remember in the gospel, she's the one who came to Jesus and said, Jesus, can my sons sit at your left and right in the kingdom of heaven, right? So she's, she's pretty bold. I remember one of our Jewish tour guides in Israel, he says, that sounds just like a Jewish mother. My mother was exactly like that. She would have said it just that way too. Uh, so that, that was Salome. Salome was a follower of Jesus also. And she was, she was there at the crucifixion. She was at the cross during the crucifixion. She was with the women who put Jesus's body in the tomb on Friday night. And Salome was with the women who went early on Sunday morning to go anoint the body for burial. And of course, when they got there, the stone is rolled away. The angel is there saying, he is not here. He is risen. And the women, they run back to tell the disciples what has happened. So Salome was an eyewitness to all of these things, John's, uh, John's mother. John, of course, also was present for Jesus' crucifixion. Many of them were not there that day. They had fled. They were afraid. John stayed. John was there at the cross. And remember, Jesus uh, Jesus' mother Mary was also there and Jesus looks down and says, uh, woman, behold your son, son, behold your mother. In other words, John, I want you to take care of my mother. Make sure, because Jesus was the oldest son, he was making sure his mother was taken care of that day on the cross. And so Jesus asked John to do that. You can imagine how close that they were. And John was also the first one to look inside the empty tomb, because remember the women ran back to tell the disciples what the angel had said. And the scriptures say that both Peter and John took off, they tore off towards the garden. And John makes a point to say, I outran him. I outran Peter. I was the first one to the tomb. And he peers inside and looks and then Peter bursts past them and plows inside. And they both are just in, in wonderment and amazement. What has happened? What has transpired today? In the intervening years, John served as one of the elders at the church at Jerusalem, along with Peter and along with Jesus' brother James. In his later years, John serves as an elder in the church at Ephesus. Ephesus was a major commercial city on the coast in western Turkey. And John is associated with that city and served the people of God at, at Ephesus. And that's probably where he wrote the Gospel of John that we're gonna be reading through together, where he wrote most probably the three letters that bear his name, 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John that we call them, and also the book of Revelation, which John received that revelation as a prisoner on the island of Patmos, which was off the coast of Western Turkey. And then probably when he was released from that imprisonment, wrote what we have contained for us as the book of Revelation. John lived to an old age. He was the last surviving apostle when he was writing the Gospel of John. And he spoke 
with an authority and credibility that few could match. You know, they have found a fragment, it's called the Rydelands Papyrus, but it's a fragment of the Gospel of John. They found it in Egypt and it was dated to the year 135. And so if a copy of the Gospel of John is found in Egypt that's dated to 135, we know it must have been written significantly earlier than that for it to be copied and circulated that far. These are the words and the memories and the witness of the Apostle John. And only the time Time and persecution has only served to, for John to have, has only strengthened his faith in who Jesus is. And he's going to share what Jesus said and what he did and its meaning as he writes the Gospel of John. And he writes that we would have faith in Jesus as the Son of God. He wants those who have never heard to hear from the lips of the one who saw him and walked with him and touched him and heard him and leaned against him at the Last Supper, was with him at the cross and the tomb. He wants you to hear what he saw and witnessed, that you too would have faith, initial faith and sustaining faith in who Christ is. And John is the only one who uses the title and the name the word for Jesus. And he uses it three times. He uses it in the Gospel of John. He uses it in his, in his letter, his first letter that we call 1 John. And he also uses it in the book of Revelation. And so what I wanna do, I wanna read all three of those references that John has to the word. And then we'll just take a few minutes to reflect on it and to receive him today as the word of God. So here it is, John chapter one, beginning in verse one. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Here's 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, that is concerning the word of life. And then Revelation chapter 19. I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and the one sitting on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God. 
If you'd pray with me. Father, we thank you for the reading of your word. We thank you that you are the very word of God and that you would help us to receive that in Jesus' name, amen. So how can I receive Jesus as the word? I wanna point out just briefly three ways that you and I can do that today. And here's the first one. The first is that we would receive him as the revealing word, the revealing word. If you're jotting things down, you can jot that down. Look at the beginning of verse one in John one. In the beginning was the word. What does that term, the word, mean? The original language that this is written in, Greek, the original language is the word logos, which in its common use refers to intelligent, spoken communication. So a word is a good translation, right? Intelligent, spoken communication, the word. What this is saying is that God has perfectly expressed himself through Jesus that Jesus is the spoken communication of the Father, that Jesus faithfully and truthfully communicates or reveals the mind and heart and will of the Father. When you get into the Gospel of John, you're gonna read Jesus saying things like, I only say what the Father tells me to say. I only do what the Father tells me to do. And so what he's saying is, I am the faithful and true communication of the Father. But the word logos was also a loaded term in the first century, and John's using it pretty intentionally. It's a loaded word both for a Jewish person and for a Greek person. Let me just explain it super briefly. For a Jewish person, when they heard logos, when they heard the word of God, they're immediately thinking of the Old Testament scriptures because all through the Old Testament, it's a constant refrain. The word of the Lord, the word of the Lord, the word of the Lord, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, the word of the Lord came to Isaiah. And so by calling him the word, what he is saying is that in the past, the word of the Lord would at certain times and places come to the prophets. But now that very word is among us. And this is exactly what the writer of Hebrews is saying when he writes long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Jesus is the word of the Lord in the Old Testament made flesh. But in Greek culture, this term was also used to refer to something that they called the universal divine reason, an eternal, unchanging truth present from the time of creation available to every individual who wants it. And, and the Greeks called this meta-truth, this meta-truth from which all other truth derived and that they were seeking. They called it the logos. And so John is saying to the Greek that truth that you are looking for, 
that ultimate truth of the universe you're looking for, let me tell you about him because that truth is contained in the person of Jesus. So what does it mean for you and I to receive him as the revealing word? Let me just suggest a couple things. One is this, and it's the fact, the idea, that God has chosen to communicate to us, that God is knowable, right? We live in a time that says, I'm not so sure anything is knowable. I'm not sure there is truth that is knowable. I mean, maybe there's a God, but how can he be known? And I'm sure he, he can be known. And that's why we have terms like my truth and your truth, because we're not sure that there is a capital T truth. But in receiving Jesus as the word of God, John is affirming that God has spoken. He is knowable, and he is knowable through Jesus, our Messiah. And that as the word of God, everything Jesus says, everything Jesus does is faithfully communicating or revealing who God is, the heart of God. Because he doesn't just speak the truth on occasion. He is the truth among us. And so as you begin to read and engage with the Gospel of John uh, starting tomorrow, you're gonna see Jesus laying down truth, right? He's gonna lay down truth about God. He's gonna lay down truth about the world. He's gonna lay down truth about ourselves. And then John, as Jesus does that, John is gonna show people having two different reactions to truth being laid down, okay? Some people are gonna receive it and some people are going to reject it. And when John does that, he is issuing us a challenge at the same time. He's saying, what do you think about Jesus? Are these the words of truth or are they not? And when you're reading through it, you're gonna encounter some of the words of Jesus that kind of blow your mind a little bit, right? They're super challenging. They may even at first glance be a little confusing to us, and that's okay. That's one of the reasons we wanna to get together in our groups, bring those things, talk about them. But here's what I wanna challenge you to do, is that as you, as you begin reading the Gospel of John, that you would say, Lord, I receive you as the revealing word of God. I want to encounter the living word as I read the written word. I want to know you. Would you open this up to me that I would have understanding because I believe that you are the truth and I wanna receive that. And what you'll find as you pray that prayer in faith that it's gonna explode in understanding to you. And that's part of what it means for you and I to receive him as the revealing word. God has communicated. That communication is Jesus. And I have a choice. Will I receive it or will I reject it? And John's going to be challenging us with that all the way through. So he's the revealing word. Here's the second thing I want to 
point out about receiving Jesus as the word is that, is that John is calling me to also receive him. And get this, you can jot this down. He's calling me to receive him, not just as the revealing word, but as the divine word in the flesh. In other words, Jesus is God. This is mind-blowing, but it's exactly what John is saying. It is unmistakable. Look back at verse one. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. Now reflect for just a minute on what he is saying. He says, in the beginning, in other words, the word, which is Jesus, existed before creation, before time, before space, before matter, Jesus was there, that the word of God is eternal and existed from the beginning. And then he says, the word was both with God and the word was God. In other words, the word had equality with God and yet was a distinct person. This is the beginnings of what we call the Trinity, right? One God manifested in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So let me ask you, what do you think about that? Many today would be willing to receive Jesus as a good teacher, maybe even receive him as a prophet who spoke the things of God, maybe even to receive him as some sort of guru who can guide me in some way. But John does not present him in these terms. John says he was from the beginning, he was with God, and he was God. And listen to me when I say that he must be God because no man can redeem you. No man can save you. No man should be worshiped. No man should be called Lord. He had to be God of all to effect our redemption. And that is exactly how John presents him. And then look at verse 14. John says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The preexistent, eternal God took on human flesh and lived among us for a time. John is saying not only is he fully God, but he took on humanity and fused it together and was fully man at the same time. Fully God and fully man fused together in the person of Jesus and both were necessary for our redemption. 
And when we think about this, it is so mind-blowing. But shouldn't we expect the eternal God of the universe and his ways to blow our mind a little bit? Shouldn't we expect a little bit of mystery? I mean, if everything was just man-made kind of reason, we would, we would and just fit into a neat, tidy box. We might have reason for suspicion, but instead we find it as it is that God blows our mind in how he did and would accomplish our redemption. He took on flesh. He came to our neighborhood. John is saying this logos, this eternal truth that you have been writing about and searching for is, has come in the person of Jesus Messiah. And we have saw him, we have heard him, we have touched him, and let me tell you about him. I mean, think about it. God took on flesh. He came to dwell in our muck and in our mire. If he is fully God and fully man, we can say God has had a headache. He has been tired. He has been hungry. He has been thirsty. He has been tempted as we are. He has walked through the valley of the shadow of death. And why would the preexistent eternal God do this? Why? Because he loves us, because he cares for us, because he has provided a way for us to be saved. And this gives us hope. You know, some would say, you know, maybe, maybe there's a God, but I think He's not only is he not knowable, but he's not involved in our world or in our life. It's like he just wound up the clock of creation and then he took off. And so God doesn't hear our prayers, doesn't answer our prayers. There's nothing miraculous that occurs. God is not present in our world. He just sort of wound it up and let it go. And in the face of this sort of thinking, John says, not only does God care, he came in the flesh to be among us and accomplish our redemption. He loves you, he sees you, he cares about you, he hears your prayers, he is ready to work in your life. God has come to our world and is with us. God with us. So as the word, he reveals God perfectly. As the word, he is God in the flesh. And can I share one final thing? He also calls me here to receive him as the creative and life-giving word. And let me explain that. The creative and life-giving word. Look again at John 1, verses three, four, and five. John says, all things were made through him. And without him, was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So in the opening chapters of Genesis, we hear almost like a pounding refrain. It occurs 
10 times in the opening chapters. It says, and God said, right? God spoke the universe into existence. It says, and God said, let there be light. And God said, let there be sky. And God said, let there be sea. And God said, let there be land. And God said, let there be vegetation. And God said, let there be animal life. And God said, let, you know, let there be man. Jesus, John is saying, is the word that God spoke at creation. And so in that way, Jesus is the agent of all creation. He is the source of all life. He is the word of God that spoke life at the beginning and that is why he has the authority to speak life to you right now because he is the author of all life and he alone can give it to us. This is what John is saying when we read earlier from his first letter, 1 John 1, 1, when he calls Jesus the word of life. In other words, he is the word, the creative word that gives and sustains life. This is the significance when John relates in John 8 the, the raising of Lazarus from the dead, which was a public event that directly led to his crucifixion. But Jesus, with a word, speaks life to the dead, and Lazarus is raised. He is the word that can give life to you and I also, because apart from the life of God, we are dead in our sins. And you say, I'm not dead, I'm sitting right here as alive as, al as alive can be. But if, if we are not connected to Jesus by faith so that his life can be our life, the Bible says we're dead. We are spiritually dead in our sins. It's, it's like a cut flower. You know, when you cut a flower from its stem and you put it in a vase and you put it in your home, it looks pretty for a few days, but it is dying because it has been cut off from its source of life. And when we are in our sins, we too are cut off spiritually from the life that God desires us to have. It is only through faith in Jesus that we can be reconnected and he can speak life to us. The creator of life gave his life so that we may have life. This is amazing stuff that John is telling us. And not as the creative and life-giving word, not only does he have authority to give us life, but can I share one other thing with you? Is that when we know that, we are enabled to have meaning and purpose in our life. And I want to point this out to you from what Paul says in Colossians about Jesus as creator. Listen to it, he writes, for by him, and he's talking about Jesus, for by Jesus all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things 
were created through him and for him. Circle that word for. You are created for God. And he ends by saying he is before all things and in him all things hold together. You were created through Jesus and for Jesus. Your value, your purpose, your meaning is derived from this fact. For him, through him, and for him. And I want you to understand, and you probably already fully realize this, is that this is a minority view in our culture. The dominant philosophy of our culture is that your life has no ultimate meaning or purpose other than what you make it. Maybe you find pleasure or power or position, but that is all you can expect. There is no ultimate meaning or purpose in life. This philosophy which really came to a head in Europe uh, in Western culture and then to America in the 1800s. We have a name for it, it's called nihilism, nihilism. It essentially says life and man has no inherent meaning, no inherent purpose. Nihilism rejects any ultimate truth and therefore any spirituality, values, or morality. That's the dominant view, the dominant philosophy in all of our universities, in all of Western culture, this is the dominant view. And yet we are being called to think very differently about our meaning and about our purpose. And ideas have consequences. Ideas are powerful. And the rise of nihilism in Western culture has produced the most deadly century in human history. The 20th century, the 1900s, produced more war and more death and more violence and more atrocity on a scale that has never been seen in human history. Ideas have consequences. And this idea is still very much alive in our culture today. Last week, I was scrolling through Apple News, okay? I was not Googling for an article by this topic or anything. I was just reading my news feed. And app, this was an article that Apple News was featuring. It was written by Dr. Alan Lightman, who is a physicist at MIT. And it was an article that he wrote for The Atlantic that Apple News picked up. Here was the title of the article. It was called, Life is an Accident of Space and Time. And the article does not get more encouraging from there, okay? <laughs> Life is an accident of space and time. Here's basically what he writes in his article to summarize it. He says, and he's a physicist, he says the universe is finely tuned for life. No doubt about it. He says one little mathematical decimal point movement in one way or another in the fundamental mathematics of the universe and life could not exist. He says there is no doubt, no doubt, undisputable, our universe is finely tuned for life. And so he's saying how could that be? 
He says there's only two possible explanations for this. One is the existence of God who created the universe for him and through him for life. He says that is one logical explanation, but he rejects it. He offers and advocates instead for his second alternative, which is that there are an infinite number of universes. An infinite number of universes. And ours, because there's an infinite number, ours just happened to be one that had the right mathematics for life to exist. He says, our existence then is an accident, a mere throwing of the cosmic dice. He ends the article by saying, what are we to make of this? He says, here's his conclusion. We give the universe meaning by observing it. Otherwise, it would just exist. Have a nice day, kids, right? I mean, what, what, what is this? <laughs> the, but this is a product of the dominant worldview of the culture that we live in. Mr. Lightman is desperately searching for meaning in his worldview, and he cannot find it. He's desperately trying to find it, but he cannot ultimately find it. And what we find as we interact in our world today is that our culture is desperately asking, who am I? Why am I here at all? Why does life exist? Do I have any ultimate meaning? And we have an answer to communicate into the culture. That answer is found in Jesus as the word of life. We were created through him. We are created for him. Life is not meaningless. The universe is not meaningless. And it is all through Jesus as the word. I can know truth because God has spoken through the revealing word. I can know hope because God has come as the divine word in the flesh to save me and be with me. And I can know meaning because he is the creative word and I am created through him and I can have for him. We have a word to speak into our culture but first we must receive him as all of these things in our heart. Are you lacking? Do you, do you need to know truth? Do you need hope? Do you need meaning? Would you receive him today as the word of life? If you'd pray with me. Father in heaven, we, we love you. We thank you for these words that you inspired through the Apostle John. We thank you that you are the very word of God. We thank you that you are the word of life. We thank you that you are the word that was from the beginning. We thank you that you are the word who was with God 
and who was God. We thank you that you are the word that took on flesh and dwelt among us. And by faith, we receive that word into our heart today, that you are knowable, that you love us, that you have come to us in the flesh, that you hear our prayer, that you respond to us, that you see our need, and you can work miracles in our life. You are God among us, God in the flesh, the only one who could save us. We receive you that way. We receive you as the one who reveals perfectly the Father. And we can choose to receive your truth or reject it. God, we tell you today, we want to receive it as the very word of God. And Lord, we thank you that we are created through you and for you, and that you give our life meaning and purpose. And we want to live for you with all of our being, all that we have, that we would live for you. We thank you for these things. And some among us might be receiving Jesus as the word for the very first time today. And Lord, you're giving them life. And for all of us in the room, that we would receive you as the word in a deeper way that would strengthen and enrich our faith and that you would send us out to communicate this word of hope to the culture around us. We love you. We thank you for who you are. It's in the name of Jesus, the name above all names that we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Let's stand and worship.